Now, the events of this week south of the border required of me to make some adjustments to some of the things that I have to say this morning, in particular, certainly uh, the introduction that I had planned to give. It seems to me that when we're talking about a message of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration, of grace and guilt and all that goes with that. The full gamut of emotion and pain and struggle and suffering and challenge is being faced, obviously, by those who have lost family and loved ones in Aurora, Colorado. And the stories, of course, are yet to unfold about the great tragedies that have unfolded. Um, it seems to me that the nature of people and the horrors of the crimes that are foisted on one another never seem or never cease to, to realize new depths of depravity and wickedness and horror. While this is all shocking, of course, in fact, there's plenty of hurt and pain and suffering that is foisted one brother toward another, a sister toward a sister, in the church of Jesus Christ. And how horrible it must be for our God in heaven to watch his children engage in broken relationships and have hard hearts about it, refuse to reconcile. I wonder as they're um, peeling back the layers of the, the psychoanalysts Take a look at the internal structures of the gunman who turned the world upside down in in Colorado this week. I wonder if they'll find that uh, he was mistreated by family members or bullied by his friends at school. Or, Or maybe there were incidents of dysfunctional favoritism that really bothered him. Perhaps a a scholarship that he felt he was entitled to that was somehow unjustly given to someone else, some sort of miscarriage of justice, something really unfair. Because all of us are desperately looking for reasons why things happen, that we might somehow explain them. For one moment, the young man, a Colorado killer, was in charge of his world and people. And that's how he chose to express himself. Perhaps to make lots of people pay for every miscarriage of justice and every wrong direction that he had faced in his life. And he would overlay on a mass of people a list of names and faces 
that they became surrogates for. Faces of innocent people. Because somebody was going to pay. Our Father, this morning, I, I just want to pray for the people in Aurora, Colorado. People all over the country whose lives have been completely shattered by the misdeeds of wickedness. Energized and generated by the enemy of our hearts and the avowed, Lord, enemy of everything good. The evil one who steals and kills and destroys. Our Father, this morning, as we have this very um, amazing intersection of your word with the realities of life, the timing couldn't be more realistic. A story of a family broken that was restored. Because one man forgave and others repented. Lord, that's the the paradigm of reconciliation. And oh God, I pray that you would take us on a journey this morning that would change our lives forever. Surely, Lord, change the atmosphere of this congregation forever, I pray. May we never be the same. May the the power of your word, the press of the Holy Spirit in our lives be so real today, Lord, that we will rush to engage in the changes that we must make, I pray, to bring honor and glory to you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42 this morning? You know, I was thinking about the list that the Colorado killer must have fabricated in his mind of people who deserve to be executed. If anyone had cause for such a list, it was Joseph. And we're left to wonder, you know, when he became in charge of the world, what would he do with that? What would he do with that power? How would he treat people? Could he forgive? Would he forgive? Would he execute? Would he banish? Would he imprison? Would he shun? Would he torture? What would you do? What have you done with people who have disappointed you? What are you doing? Often in teaching the Word of God, there's a section that's very small, and you teach that really small section. Those are always happy moments for a pastor because it's a very isolated area that you have to study. And then there are other times that the story is large, like four chapters. And to fully grasp what has happened here, particularly with the comings and goings of us in the summer... You really have to take this big chunk and do something with it. That becomes a challenge. 
by God's strength, I will attempt to cover four chapters with you this morning and touch the important points of this powerful lesson that is really a paradigm, a pattern of God's forgiveness of us and our responsibilities involved in that forgiveness that bring reconciliation and restoration, us with God. And so I, I want to talk to you about basically in these next four chapters, five words that are intimately in, interconnected. Five words like grace, reconciliation, uh, um, reconciliation, grace, forgiveness. Where are they, Matthew? I need them, buddy. Go back. There they are, reconciliation. Just sit on those babies for a while. Guilt, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. Five words this morning that are interconnected and, 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 and they play out in the Joseph story and, and bring, as they are played out and interconnected, a blessed ending. Not just for Joseph's story, not, not for a story thousands of years ago, but for your story. These five words... And so this morning, if there is a relationship broken in your life, listen up and learn and live again. Because if this has not been reconciled, you're not really living. You're existing, but you're not living. And God has so much more for you. And this morning, really... Whoever is among us, you are in one of two possible states if you are faced with some sort of broken relationship in your life. You've either been offended or you have offended. One of those two situations or scenarios are true of you in a broken relationship. You've either been the one offended or you've been the one who has offended. So if you've been the one who has offended, or if you've been the one offended, the need for you is forgiveness, to forgive. If you are the one who has offended, then you are in a state needing to repent. You know, at first run, as I entitled this several weeks ago and gave it to to the office to try and make some headway on, on where we were going in the theme of this and, and with our music department, I had entitled it Forgiveness. It's not about forgiveness. I want to assure you that forgiveness was already the context before we even get to chapter 42. Back in chapter 41, when Joseph named his son Manasseh, He said at that moment, God has enabled me to forget and to forget about my brothers. What, to just put them away and park them away and pretend they didn't exist? No, that's not what he meant at all. God has given me, the Holy Spirit has given me the capacity to set aside the offense and be in a state of forgiveness. I've allowed forgiveness to to bathe over my life, and now I can move on. That's how we hit chapter 42. 
We hit that in stride and we run from there. The title that really goes over all of this from these four chapters is Reconciliation. Forgiveness is already the context. And so there's two questions that really have to be addressed this morning. And we're going to come back to them at the end. And I'm going to put them back to you. Are you in a position to reconcile? You've been hurt. You've been mistreated. You've been offended. There is only one way out for you. Have you allowed the Holy Spirit to erase the offense? That's the way out. Or are you holding forth your execution list? Your revenge place? When forgiveness has already captivated your heart, there is no end to the grace that flows toward reconciliation energy. Mark that down. It's simply true. When you allow the Holy Spirit to erase the offense, there is no end of grace that you now are capable of pouring on a situation. That's the setup for where we're going to go here. Or the second situation or scenario you might be in is you might be the one who has done the hurting. You have mistreated people. You have offended someone. So are you in a position to be reconciled with? Because there's one way out for you. To have rescue from your, the pain of your guilt. Have you felt the impact of the hurt you have leveled on another? Or have you smugly moved on? Living in some sort of denial, allowing your conscience to be seared. Listen to me. Before real reconciliation can ever occur, true repentance must take place. And before true repentance is ever possible, true guilt must be acknowledged. So you are either on one or the other of those poles, that spectrum of a broken relationship in your life. There's no other options or alternatives. So this morning, lessons from a Middle East famine on the whole idea of reconciliation, the grace of forgiveness, the rescue from guilt, restoration of brothers... How is it done? In Proverbs chapter 25, 21 to 22, the wisdom writer writes this, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you heap burning coals on his head. You know, the Apostle Paul liked it so much, he retweeted it, retweeted it to the Romans in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Verse 20, sorry. By the way, I used to always think that heaping coals of, burning coals on a person's head was to, to really get even, you know? The only reason that you're nice to people who've been nasty to you is so that you can make them really sweat. You pour this coal, hot coals on their heads, you just burn their head off. And I realized that's not what he means at all. He means that Get yourself so in shape with the living God in your life that you can 
You can feed your enemy. You can give drink to the one who's despitefully used you. And the heaping of hot coals on their head is not revenge. It's the pouring forth of gracious energy upon them that God uses to bring conviction to their lives that they might be reconciled with you. That's the powerful message of the gospel. That's what Christ has done for us. The cross has made reconciliation possible for everybody with God. The forgiveness that God has poured out through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary has made every single human soul on the face of this globe who ever lived or ever will live eligible for reconciliation with the living God. It's all about recognizing his forgiveness, recognizing guilt, recognizing that the payment has been made, recognizing that repentance needs to happen and reconciliation and restoration with God occurs. So first, as I understand it, grace flows for forgiveness. The undeserved favor of God enables us to be able to forgive or to be forgiven. And then, from that forgiveness, grace is poured out on those who've hurt us. And Joseph has arrived at that spot. He's there. He's in the sweet spot with God. And by God's grace, he's able to forgive and becomes a dispenser of forgiving grace. Now, the only reason that any of us And many of us have been in a rebellious state before in this regard. But the only reason that any of us would be unwilling to dispense grace when we've been hurt is because somehow in the incapacitated part of our minds, we think that we don't need huge quantities of grace ourselves. That somehow we're able to overlook our own desperate wickedness. But when we... Embrace the grace of God's forgiveness. That grace can be lavished out now upon others, which examines their hearts. This is the heaping uh, of coals, the heaping of burning coals on their head, so that their co- the quality of the hearts of those who've hurt you are forced to go to a crossroads in their life. Will I receive this grace? Will it change my life? Will it shape me? Will it root out the guilt? Will it cause repentance? Will it bring reconciliation and restoration? Or will I remain hardened and hurt and angry and revengeful? I can tell you this. Oblivion does not make restoration easier. It makes it impossible. Will I, the guilty, offensive person, receive that grace and reconcile or remain estranged, bullheaded, stubborn, miserable, pretending that it's okay, pretending that it doesn't matter, stating who cares? 
And I can tell you this, if you belong to the living Christ, he's going to force the issue. Because he wants restoration and reconciliation. And that's what this is all about. The next four chapters are all about forcing this restoration, forcing this reconciliation. I love how chapter 42 starts out. Jacob, the old sage, looking at his son, saying, why do you keep looking at each other? Why are you just staring at each other? We're all starving to death. We're dying here. And CNN has reported that there's food in Egypt. Can you just see the guys? I mean, it's just so funny, you know. But I think this, this it's just, I, I don't know. I just was kind of laughing when I'm reading. I'm just thinking the, the old man sitting there, you know, all the guys are just sitting around and they're dying. And just, he just cranks out, you know, this statement to them. Why are you all staring at each other? He's, uh, he's still the old man in charge, you know. He's still, he's still the old crusty boss man. And uh, so it says, Then the ten, brother, ten, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. Why? Because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Why was he afraid of that? You know, the boys had reported the story of how Joseph met his untimely end. And when you get to this verse, you realize that the old man didn't believe one word of it. He knew something awful happened to his son, but he was pretty sure that animals weren't responsible for it. This family was... Abundantly dysfunctional. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Remember what his dream promised? As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. In Egyptian. Translated to them. In Hebrew. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Now, you need to know that this is a serious motley crew that has just showed up. You know, the Egyptians were the... uh, The Egyptian culture of the day were like uh, the GQ magazine uh, uh, models. All right, this was, this was preppy land. And, and Egyptians are clean-shaven. We're talking metrosexual-looking guys. You know what I mean? These guys were, were dressed to the nines. And in comes this ragtag group of smelly shepherds with full beards and shaggy hair, stinking like sheep. Can you imagine? And Joseph's looking his preppy best. Because, man, he is big man on campus. Got the manicured, the, the pedicure thing going, Lynn. So they don't recognize him. Why would they? He doesn't look anything. I mean, more than 20 years has gone by. He doesn't look anything like them. He doesn't have a Hebrew accent anymore. He just spouts out an Egyptian. He even walks like an Egyptian. 
So he bumps into his brothers. And in uh, the questioning that goes on, their answer is this. Their response to him is this. Their characterization of themselves is this. Verse 11. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men. I had to stop there. I underlined that in my Bible. Can you imagine what Joseph was thinking at that moment? This is the one characteristic they chose to use of themselves. We are honest men. Nothing could be further from the truth. Their father's afraid to send their brother with them because they're not honest men. They're horrible men. They're guilty men. They had come to believe in kidding themselves, burying their guilt under layers of denial, that they were somehow honest men. I want to share just quick three things with you this morning. And we got to fly. Here's what happens in this first section. Grace first examines whether you are sorry you have to pay for your wickedness or sorry for your wickedness. In order for reconciliation to ever occur, God is going to force this into your life. The one who forgives, and Joseph has already forgiven them, because by the way, the minute they stood before me and said, we are honest men, you know what I would have done if I was big man on campus? Off with their heads. That he only spoke harshly to them is incredibly gracious. Because you may be asking, where's the grace in all of this? That they were still alive 10 minutes after they showed up is grace. And believe me, and I think you do, that any of us are alive today in this room is the grace of God. We don't deserve it. And so they characterize themselves as honest men. And then it says in verse 9, he remembered his dream, which is why he spoke harshly to them. What part of his dream did he remember? What, what's the point of this stating that he remembered his dream? You know what he remembered? Is that his brothers, it wasn't so much that they were vile toward him, even though they were. Why, why was Joseph so indignant at this moment that, that he spoke harshly to his brothers? It's because he recalled that they were disparaging the very word of God to him. The dreams that had come to him were as a message from God. They had demonstrated offense toward the very message of God. He remembered that. And so he tests them, checks them out. You see, even though we have forgiven someone of their offense against us, for honesty, which they claim to have, once breached to be characteristic of you again, it must be tested. True, true reconciliation must face the offense. Or you can't have reconciliation. The point of forgiveness, beloved, is to move a relationship to reconciliation. So did it move there for them? 
I mean, Joseph in verse 24 is, is weeping. He, he sees his brothers. He, he has to turn away from them and weep. He has so much compassion in his heart, so much gracious energy in his life, so much forgiving energy in his life that he just wants to embrace them. But the offense has not been faced. God was reshaping the Israelites themselves, the nation of God. Reconciliation can never occur until personal comfort and conveniences are moved to the weight of convictions. Until I move from poor me to poor you. Uh, as far as they were concerned, look, look what they say in verse um, 28. What is this that God has done to us? Poor us. We're being harshly treated. We're, we, we, uh, Joseph sent back with them gra- the bags of grain filled with grain and, and even put their money back in the sacks. And so all they could see is God is, God is going to get revenge on us. Poor us. They had no concept of the fact that they had hurt their brother, had hurt their father for all of these years. They were still all about themselves. They were still concerned that they might be paying for their wickedness instead of facing their wickedness. It's still about them. Well, scene two shifts. They're on their way back to uh, their father in Canaan as we move through chapter 42. And uh, Joseph had put the test on them. This is how you can prove that you're honest men. Bring back your brother, Benjamin. Prove to us that you have another brother there. Joseph just wanted his brother. He just wanted to see his father again. And we see that there are changes happening in the brothers because by the time we get to verse 37, we see that Reuben says to his father, listen, we've got to take Benjamin back or we're never going to get more grain and we'll never get Simeon out. By the way, he incarcerates Simeon. Why does he incarcerate Simeon? Simeon is second, second oldest. How did Joseph pick out the second oldest and why did he pick out the second oldest? Well, Reuben, as he knew, had tried to rescue him. But not Simeon. The second oldest brother took responsibility, as far as Joseph was concerned, to be incarcerated while he sends them all back. And so Reuben says, we'll never get our brother Simeon out of prison. We'll never get him back. And and we've got to take Benjamin back in order for to do that and and to get more food. And so Reuben says, listen, you can, if, if we don't bring Benjamin back safely, you can kill my two sons, two of my sons. We see that there's starting to be a change in their hearts. As we continue to move through, we get to Judah. Verse 8 of chapter 43. Judah says to his father, send the boy along. We've got to go. We could have been back and forth several times. We've got to go. Jacob doesn't want to give up Benjamin. Send the boy with us. And Judah says, I will bear the responsibility. I will take the blame for all of my life if if I don't bring back Simeon, and if I don't bring back Benjamin. And so they get, they arrive and they bring Benjamin, and 
And, and they arrive in the, uh, in the courts of Egypt in verse 16 and on. And jo- when Joseph saw Benjamin in them, he said to the steward of the house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, prepare a banquet. They're to eat with me at noon. Give them the very best. And the men did as Joseph told them. He took the men to Joseph's house. Imagine being taken to the second in command of the most powerful nation in all of the world. And there they are. And what's the response? You'd think they'd be celebrating. You'd think they'd be high-fiving each other. Man, we're on the move up. Instead, it says they're frightened. They're scared. And they start saying things like, well, he brought us here, you know, because of the silver that was put in our sacks. And he wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves. And and I, I again laughed hilariously when I read this. And take our donkeys. I'm talking, you know, this is this ragtag group of guys. They've been starving in a famine. They bring their emaciated donkeys to Egypt, which has all kinds of food. It's like bringing donkeys to a Lexus car lot and thinking you're going to steal the donkeys. Are you kidding me? These guys are so riddled with their guilt, and this is what happens. They're so riddled with their, and bound up with all of the wickedness that they've never released, never been reconciled, never been restored, that they're just thinking foolishly. They're paranoid, insecure, not free, not abundant. Grace forces to the surface the sheer magnitude of fears and anxieties that guilt bottles up. That's what you have happening here. Irreconciled issues, beloved, will not go away on their own. If you have things in your life that are not dealt with, that you haven't been reconciled, you haven't, they aren't going to go away. What what will happen is your body puts them in a a prison place, but they take up space in your life that's meant to be abundantly free, to be able to look one another in the face and say, I'm free before you and you're free before me, and we're free to live and to enjoy God's abundance together. I don't have that. Time never erases guilt. Time never erases guilt. It just stores it up, collects it emotionally, and it puts it on display whether you think it's on display or not. And it regularly causes turmoil. And now in verse 26 and 28, dream one fully happens. Remember all the ten brothers' sheaves bowed over? They're all there, bowing to Joseph. There's one more scene. So they, it goes on, they have the banquet, they have the dinner. The Egyptians and the Israelites don't eat together because... They don't eat together, which is odd smack dab in the middle of a reconciliation text, but it's the irony of this thing. And Joseph sits all of the men at the table in descending order of age. And they noticed, and they're looking at each other. God is driving them crazy. You understand what I'm saying? They're just like, 
what's going on? Like when you have this stuff in your life, God isn't going to leave it there. He's just persisting. And they're about to lose it. And they're trying to eat but not give it away. Can you imagine what's going on here? And Joseph's thoroughly enjoying himself. But not in a revengeful way. He's amazed at the grace that God is pouring out and what's happening. And so he decides one more thing and he sends them back with everything. Food, their money back in the the pack, but he puts in a silver goblet in Benjamin's pack and sends them on their way. They travel a little bit of the journey and he sends one of his henchmen after them. And we pick it up in verse 3 of 44. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this... The cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination, this is a wicked thing you have done. Listen, the final test, the final scene, the final sting that grace is pouring out is that grace eventually uproots sin in your life that's long ago buried. Sometimes it will take a lot of personal distress to uproot it. And God is prepared to do that. And he's prepared to do it over as much time as it takes. God is patient. This is 20 some odd years that God has waited for this. And sometimes until you feel the same crush in your own life that you put upon another, you don't face your guilt. You won't repent. And so in the most amazing way, Joseph has them ask this question. Because they go through the packs, of course. Guys say, oh, it's not, not us. We didn't steal anything. It's not us. Go through the packs. And by the way, anybody who found, if you find anything, anybody, that guy is your slave. Of course, the uh, silver goblet is in Benjamin's sack. And they're like, it wasn't enough that all of our age were laid out. I, what is going on now? But before they do that, we get to the place where Joseph has the steward say to them, why have you returned evil for good? You want to know what the response was? Have you read it? Because you remember your assignment was to read all this before you got here this morning. I'm not going to take a test and ask you if you read because I can't handle the depression. Here's what they say, verse 7. Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. Are you hearing it? Return evil for good. 
You know, all they could see was sort of the surface things, you know. Hey, we're not thieves. We don't steal stuff from people. Had they never, ever remembered to connect the dots or realized to connect the dots that they had stole a man's heart, they had stolen a man's soul, Joseph, their brother, who was manager, who was watching over them, whose father had commissioned him to watch over their care, watch over the fields, make sure that things were going all right, they had returned to him evil for good. Far be it from us to ever do something like that. That's why the confrontation on a broken relationship is a very, very God-ordained process because it requires divine supervision to cut through the layers of denial that we live with in our lives. No, I'm not like that. No, I would never do anything like that. It's like the moment when Nathan points, points his bony finger at King David and says, you are the man. And finally, we get down to verse 16, where the man most guilty, Judah, remember? The brother who actually sold him? Finally says this. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Guilty. We've sinned against God. Finally, repentance arrives. And what happens? There's a great reunion. And Joseph, uh, in verse 3, says uh, of chapter 45, I am Joseph now, that's a diaper-changing moment for the guys, I'm sure. It's like, what? No. And three times we find out the orientation of Joseph's heart. God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you. Verse 8, God sent me here ahead of you. The amazing grace of God. Those men wanted to take the very life God would use to save their own. (coughs) Beloved, you are a long-term victim of your offenses. But when grace flows for forgiveness and from forgiveness so that guilt is finally realized and repentance can come, from that reconciliation will occur every single time. And that's what God wants. When forgiveness meets repentance, reconciliation results. Now, beloved, listen to me. You are always on one side or the other of this result. Which is it? Are you the one who needs to forgive? Or are you the one who needs to repent? You are on one side or the other. Let's pray. Father, I I pray this morning that as we take this story from 
the amazing story it is, the, the amazing true God story of forgiveness and reconciliation, repentance and guilt and restoration. Father, I pray that we might not allow this to be an interesting distant story, but that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you might drive this right into our hearts this morning. Because there are relationships in this room that are not restored, that are broken. Some that may have been broken for decades. And Father, I pray this morning that by the convicting work of your Spirit, that you might press this application to all of us individually, personally today, Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen. I want to um, invite you, just, just before we leave, and we're, we're minutes away from that, but I want to make sure that this isn't some sort of just story that was interesting, but you don't incorporate the application into your life. Because in fact, from God's perspective, there is no greater pain in his life than when his children are out of sorts with one another. And, and so, as you were going through this story today, I left in your sermon notes section a place where it says there, I long to be reconciled with, and there's a blank. Now, God, you know what? The Holy Spirit has already put a name right in your mind. Right now, a name went into your mind. God has put that mind or that name in your mind and you are either on one or the other side of that brokenness you have either been the one who was offended and hurt or you're the one who has delivered the offense and been the one who has hurt someone so you either need to be the one who forgives or the one who repents. And in terms of that relationship, you either check off one box or the other. I need to be the one who forgives. I need to, I need to establish the atmosphere where God's grace can pour out of me that this relationship could be restored. Or you need to be the one who says, no, I'm the, I'm the one. I'm the one responsible for the brokenness here. I'm the one who hurt. I need to be the one who faces the guilt, the sin, and seeks forgiveness, repents, and restoration is forthcoming. Now let me just say to you this morning, I encourage all of you who've been hurt to forgive. Establish that gracious atmosphere in your life. Forgiveness doesn't depend on repentance. Reconciliation always does. But so far as it is in you, forgive. And then let God go to work, as he did in this story, of changing the hearts of hardened shepherds so that they would turn and finally admit their guilt and their sin and be embraced by their brother and a family brought back together and a father reunited. Can you imagine? What a blessing. That's the ideal. That's the dream that God has for his people at Calvary Baptist Church. 
so would you make sure that you respond to God today he's working on your heart respond to this there is a connection by the way between full of forgiveness and full of faith in God why could Joseph forgive he trusted God's plan God sent me here God sent me here God sent me here and now I'm free to be gracious to you our Father and our God thank you for this morning thank you for the lessons you've taught us important lesson Lord I just pray that that there wouldn't be anybody here who would walk away from a broken relationship and leave it the way it is at the very least Father there isn't anybody in here who could just who, who can't just forgive as you have forgiven us I pray that we would do that and then see the grace of reconciliation flow as you do your work of bringing repentance and restoration I pray this in Jesus name for his sake Amen.